1 Peter chapter 1 at verse 8. I think that's where we stopped last Sunday night. And it's a wonderful verse, a verse that ought to find its experience in each one of us. But I would like to say, however, that there are things that these people experience that we experience also because when we are brought into a relationship to the a holy God of heaven, uh, then there are certain fundamental, basic, uh, moral truths that are true of all of us alike. And that's why you will see that there are some things that we can share alike with them. But then again, it doesn't take Peter to tell us that. It takes Paul to tell us that. And if Paul didn't tell us that, we would have to say this particular thing is for the Israel only. I'll illustrate it as we go along. In verse 8, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified before the, uh, beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is, uh, that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we need to go farther, we'll get into it just a little later. But looking at this eighth verse, I might suggest that this is something that every true believer in Christ ought to experience. It should be experienced by us as members of the body of Christ, and it should be experienced by the people of Israel, because they too are brought into a relationship with a holy God. In the Old Testament, God had to tell them this. Uh, he said, I am holy, and therefore you be holy. And we have the same teaching here uh, uh, by Peter, because Peter is talking to the same people. And, uh, but if we want any teaching from this, and really take it to ourselves now, I read a commentary on this, and, and I would hate to tell you, if you want to match what I've got to say to see whether it's good, not only try to search the scriptures to see whether things are so, pick up another commentary if you want to, and see how this chapter, this book is being dealt with by the uh, fundamentalist uh, preachers and Bible teachers today. Here is a verse that says, Whom I having not seen ye love. Now that can be true of us for the simple reason that we have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ either, but... We trust that we love him. And that love should be manifested in our daily lives by separation, or separating from that which is morally opposed to the moral character of God himself who is holy. And we should separate from all things that would uh, impose itself upon us and cause us to deviate from the scriptures that are applicable to us and are ours for obedience. And so it says, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, if you want to take that for yourself, let's go to the Apostle Paul. We have rejoicing there, we have a hope there, and everything else. Now, God doesn't uh, tell us things uh, twice unless there's a reason for it. He's not given to repetition. In fact, he's against vain repetition, according to the Gospel of Matthew. 
But why do we read almost the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and uh, over here in 1 Peter? Because there also we find uh, what our attitude should be and our, how our uh, affection should be affected uh, by being saved by the grace of God. In Romans chapter 5, at verse 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now remember what we had in our verse, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So this is not a matter of repetition. If you want to know whether you should be rejoicing, go to Paul. If you want to know whether the Israelites of the saved remnant should be rejoicing over their position and over their lot and over their promises and hope, you go to the Apostle Peter. I hope that is made clear because that's part of rightly dividing the word of truth. And then it goes on in verse 3 of Romans chapter 5, But not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. You remember all of the patience that we had in the book of James? And we're going to see more patience in the first Peter chapter 1 as we go along. And then in verse 5 it says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So Paul takes five verses to make an understandable to us who are members of the body of Christ what Peter is seeking to say, we might say, uh, in essence, in one particular verse. Again, look at verse 8. Whom having not seen ye, that is the remnant of Israel, not us, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, and too bad they did not as yet see him. Because that means that the people of Israel are still rebellious and they are still going on in unbelief. They are not accepting Christ as the promised King and the Messiah. They are rejecting uh, the Apostle Peter's witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore the Lord Jesus cannot come and return, go, come back to them. That is the truth of Acts chapter 3, you remember. When in verses 19, 20, and 21, the promise of the Father is to send the Lord Jesus Christ when the nation of Israel bows the knee to the person of Christ to his Messiahship and accept him as the one who is promised from, uh, from back into the Old Testament prophets as the seed of the woman and uh, he is that indeed and they had rejected it and they just look at him as uh, Abba Ibon did just a week or two ago in his uh, sessions on television. Uh, just look at him as a Jewish uh, preacher that came along and of course he was in opposition with uh, what they as a nation would want to accept. Verse 9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now that's the same as with us, isn't it? Because we too have received the end of our salvation. We have received Christ. Salvation is ours. It is a present possession as far as we are concerned. And it's all by faith in the Lord Jesus. But for Israel, there is another salvation being mentioned. And that we will notice soon. And then in verse 10 it says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that the salvation that is being spoken of here is a prophesied salvation. It fully agrees with the prophets of old. And the prophets of old have testified to a salvation for the nation of Israel and also to a salvation for the Gentile world 
but not in this dispensation or period of time, but when the Jews are in that spiritual condition that they can be Jehovah's Witnesses after the tribulation, and they will bring many Gentiles to the, uh, to the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we find that this salvation that they enjoy is according to the prophets. That's not true with our salvation. We find that the salvation that we have is a salvation of reconciliation to all. We find that it was a special message which Paul dares to call my gospel on several occasions. And we know that this gospel was given by the risen Christ after he went back into heaven. It's definitely separated from the prophetic type of salvation which is for the nation of Israel. Gentiles are not being saved according to the prophets of Old Testament times which tell us that there would be a time when Gentiles would be saved. That could have been during the Acts period. And we find that Cornelius was one of the first persons from among the Gentiles who was given the gospel of the kingdom and he was saved and we thank God for it and he was just a little sample of what would have uh, happened among the Gentile nations if the people of Israel had accepted Christ as the promised Messiah and the Lord had returned to them and they could then be the true Jehovah Witnesses uh, that we read about in the gospel in the book of Isaiah. So here in verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now don't be frightened about the word grace. It doesn't say tribute. It doesn't say dispensation of grace. We find that God has always been gracious to the people of Israel. And we find that these people of Israel have had grace ministered to them time and time again. Every time prophets were sent to them, it was God's gracious remedy for some spiritual condition among them for which they should have been ashamed and for which they should have been repentant. And fortunately, on many occasions, they did become repentant. But concerning the death of Christ on the cross and the fact that they vocally were against the Lord Jesus by saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And yet they would not repent of that most dastardly deed that was ever committed by any people on the face of the earth and that the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so here is a grace that should come unto them and they were enjoying that grace and we thank God for that. Now that's God's grace and that's his gracious way of handling the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament times. This grace has nothing to do with the dispensation of grace. I hope you can see that. We must remember that these people were already recipients of salvation. Their salvation, however, was in accordance with the prophetic word. But if we read Romans chapter 16 and 25, we will see that our salvation is according to the mystery, not according to prophecy. And that's the big difference. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 16 and verse 25. And read you that verse of scripture. May I suggest that here is a verse you ought to memorize. Because this shows definitely that the New Testament presents two gospels. One is according to prophecy and the other is according to mystery. Romans 16 chapter, chapter 16 and verse 25 says this. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel... Not Peter's gospel, not James' gospel, not Jude's gospel, not the gospel of Jesus when he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom to Israel in his lifetime ministry. 
But it says, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. We are to assume from that particular verse that both the gospel and the ministry of Christ are according to the ministry. To the mystery, rather, not ministry. According to the mystery. And we find that that is exactly what we are duty-bound to preach today. The gospel according to the mystery and the ministry of Christ according to the, ministry, uh, to the mystery. We don't preach Christ as he was preached in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That was strictly for the people of Israel. That's not for us. And that's the reason why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is in verse 16 that tells us that we don't know Christ anymore after the flesh. We only know him in resurrection and in glorification. And it's from him in glory that he has revealed the mystery to the apostle Paul and then told them what he must tell people who are Gentiles, how they might be saved without works, without any personal effort of their own, without the possession of any personal righteousness or good works. And it cannot be purchased, but that my gospel was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And what a wonderful thing that is. Now the people of Israel were not told uh, that simple message of the gospel in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized and receive the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So they had to repent, they had to be baptized in order to receive the remission of sins. If we get the remission of sins without any baptism, we get it simply by receiving Christ as our personal Savior, as the one who died for our sins on Calvary's cross. So we find that in chapter 10, their salvation was in accordance to prophecy, ours is in accordance to mystery. And... Uh, you notice that it says there, is searching what or in what manner of time, in verse 11 of 1 Peter 1, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. That was such a revelation to the prophets that they couldn't understand that if Christ, the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, would ever come into the world, that the chosen and most favored nation on all the earth would do what Isaiah chapter 53 says they would do. And that is that they would put him on the cross. They would do away with him. So they had to, and they were forced to prophesy concerning two things. The sufferings of Christ, and that is at the hands of the Jews, and the glory that should follow. And suffering and glory are always associated in the mind of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so we find here that uh, it's, it's very beautifully given to us that uh, in verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto uh, us, uh, not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things uh, uh, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. In other words, we find in verse 12 the fact that Pentecost is referred to. This is the Pentecostal gospel message of the Apostle Peter, which has to do with the gospel of the kingdom, and that could only be done with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven in order to empower these witnesses so that they would not speak in the flesh, as it were, but speak in the Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and were capable of doing this. 
So when you get into verse 13, it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you. Now, not only have they had a sample of grace in the book of Acts, period, the grace that is referred to in verse 10, of the grace that should come unto you, but also there will be a grace that will be manifested to them in a coming day. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not the dispensation of grace either. That's more grace to the people of Israel. Now Israel is not the subject of God's grace today. They are the subject of God's judgment. And we find that for this reason they nationally are blinded. They are not nationally the people of God today. Although they will be restored to that once uh, a happy status of being the children of God and the people of God. But that time of restoration will take place after God is finished with their present day program of taking out of the uh, world uh, a church, a body composed of individual believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful to God for that. And so in verse uh, 12 you have, uh, in verse 13, we have uh, a grace that is to be brought unto you, the Jews, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now there will be no grace brought to us when the Lord Jesus Christ comes down from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel. He is simply going to complete the salvation that has now begun in us. Our salvation is complete as far as the spirit is concerned. But as far as the body is concerned, it is not complete. We have to be changed in a moment of time from a body, a vile body, or a body of humiliation uh, to a glorified or glorious body likened unto the glorified body of our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 3.21. Now this is a wonderful thing. Look at verse 13. Remember that's dispensational. Don't do what the preachers are doing today. Just putting the church everywhere in every verse and trying to explain it in the light of the dispensation of the grace of God. That is not so at all. So verse 13 promises something. When is that promise of grace going to be given to Israel again? That has been sorely uh, suspended at Acts chapter 28 because of their continued disobedience it will come to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis and that means a present physical visible appearing of Christ to the nation of Israel that visible physical appearance will not happen when he comes for us the church the members of the body to take us to be with him because the meeting will be in the air and so the world is not going to see that particular meeting when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ as members of the body. But a few years following that, after the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ will come according to his promise concerning the second coming of Christ to Israel. He will come visibly, he will come physically, people will see him, and also they that pierced him will see him. And those were the Jews and the Gentiles both together. Now that you get in Revelation chapter 1. That Revelation, that's the reason why we call the book of Revelation the Apocalypses. In other words, it's the book that deals with the visible, physical return of Christ to Israel. 
It has no rapture in it at all. And yet the church has put, uh, that is Christendom, has put the rapture into chapter 4 and verse 1. And it sure doesn't fit there, but they feel like they have to do something to make it appear as though the church is in there somewhere. Alright, now the message prophesied concerning Israel was not for the benefit of the prophet's generation. That's what he's trying to tell these prophets here. The prophets were so amazed that Christ would come into the world in incarnation and be so manhandled as to be known as the suffering one. And they were prophesying concerning the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And they were so surprised, they more or less, you could see them scratching their heads and say, I wonder to whom these things refer. And so they were told that it was not for their generation, but it was for the generation that Peter is living in and to, for those uh, whom he is addressing in First Peter. And that's a wonderful portion of scripture. Must be looked at dispensationally or you're going to be confused. And the only way that you can have a proper understanding is in it is to put Israel where they belong. Alright now, the, the verse 13, uh, patience was required by them just as uh, we mentioned a while ago. And just as James mentioned in his epistle back in chapter 5 verse 7. I want to read that to you. That's one book before we get to 1 Peter. And in chapter 5 verse 7 it says, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto what? The coming of the Lord. You see... God knows when he had the Apostle Peter inspired to write this portion of scripture that Israel was set aside as a nation and soon we, we find that their city would be destroyed and their temple would be destroyed and there would be no worship, place of worship for them. There would be a people without a worship program or a people, shall we say, without religion. And so we find he says to these uh, few people who were the remnant of Israel, be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. He's sure to come. Even though he may even interject in, uh, in time another program concerning another people. When he's finished with that, he'll keep his promise of the second coming. The second coming has nothing to do with the church, the body of Christ. We are looking for his coming in rapture not in Revelation. And there's a big difference in those two words. So they are told to be patient. And then it says in verse 7 of James 5, it says, Behold, the husbandman, and that's the farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And every day, of course, brings a little closer, 24 hours closer the reality of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel. We know that to be a fact. All right, then we continue in First Peter and we look at that uh, uh, 13th verse. We must uh, say this, that God alone knew that Israel would reject the amnesty offered to them in those Pentecostal years between the ascension of Christ in chapter 1 and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ after the tribulation is over. And uh, uh, rather in those Pentecostal years between the ascension in Acts chapter 28 and 28 where we have Israel's rejection. He alone knew that these things were going to come to pass. And therefore these people had to find it out historically within a few years that this would be the case. 
Now it is very true that members of the body need to be exercise, need to exercise patience also, but remember we go to Paul in order to find that we also are offered and show that we need patience, as I said, Romans chapter 5, 1 to 5. Now, I would like to say this. I believe the time is coming when the nation of Israel will read for, uh, the book of James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3, John, Jude, and Revelation. The time is going to come when it's going to fall into their hands. Now, a lot of people are assisting or trying to assist these people of getting Bibles into their hands. And they have gone to that place called Petra, I believe. And there are supposed to be hundreds of thousands of Bibles buried in the cave there. So when these things come to pass and they seek refuge in the caves at Petra, and they have reasons to believe from the Bible that this is where it's all going to take place, that Bibles will be there. And then, as it was necessary for us to rightly divide the word of truth, it will be necessary for them to rightly divide the word of truth. Because in those Bibles there will be 66 books. What are they going to do with Romans to the end of the book of Philemon? They'll have to rightly divide it and say, that's not for us, that pertains to God's goodness and God's dispensation of grace to the people that he's just been finished with. They've been caught up to meet the Lord in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. But let's stay with the scriptures that pertain to us. And then they begin with the book of James and go right on through the book of Hebrews as far as that's concerned. And they get those verses that are needed for them. And I believe that you can get a little idea of how these teachings are reflected in those particular people who will read these scriptures for instruction in the future by looking at uh, the seven churches of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And those seven churches are not churches of this dispensation, but they are assemblies of Hebrews and if you don't believe that, I wish you would honestly, unbiasedly read all the two chapters, every verse of the two chapters about the seven churches, and all the descriptions, and everything about it is all Jewish, it's all Hebrew. But do you know that there are four places where the word patience is mentioned? And I find that as far as three churches are concerned, the church at Ephesus, the church at Thyatira, and the church at Philadelphia, they have all profited by reading this uh, request for them to be patient because the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. In reality, then they can see that the coming of the Lord will draw nigh. And I believe that's the reason why we have that scripture in the book of James chapter 5. It doesn't refer to the real close uh, venture of Christ's return for the church, the body of Christ, but it will be so appreciated in the coming day by the very Jews for whom these epistles are written. After the rapture, after the church is gone home to be with the Lord, then there will be these Jews who will be upheld and they will be supported by these uh, circumcision epistles, if I may call them that. And they will then see that they will be called upon to be patient. And that's when patience will pay off. Because four times, if you look up your dictionary, you will see that patience is mentioned in relation to Ephesus, Thyatira, and Philadelphia. And you will see, that, of course, that they have received a lot of profit from someplace in the Bible. And since James and Peter are so full of be patient, be patient, be patient, we find that it must be because they've been reading what belongs to them. But again, remember, they have to rightly divide the word. 
If they get into Colossians, they'll be lost. If they get into Romans, they'll be lost because none of those truths apply to them. Only in the same sense in which they run across verses that apply to everybody in any dispensation, just such as rejoicing and hope and so on, because we are all expected to rejoice and all expected to maintain our hope. All right, now as we go on, let's look at 14 to 16. It says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now in those three verses we have some very practical uh, exhortations. Their calling, like ours, was a calling unto holiness. Every calling that God makes is one unto holiness. But we might say, however, the objectives of the two callings, the one of the church and the one of the people of Israel, the objectives are different, although the quality is the same. It's always unto holiness. God expects us to be holy and separate from sin and sinful ways and sinful domination over us. He wants us to separate from that because He is holy. And the same is true, of course, with the nation of Israel. So while the objectives are different, and I hope you see that, they were saved to an earthly inheritance. By earthly, I don't mean a lesser quality than our heavenly inheritance, because it's going to be with Christ in the millennial earth, and then for all eternity with Christ on the new earth. So we can't say it's earthly as far as quality is concerned, but as far as place is concerned. It's on the earth that ours is in heaven. And so we find the objectives are different. Now when you get into verse 17, however, it says, And if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work past the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now that's in verse 17. How are these to pass the time while away from Judea, their homeland? Now that's what that means. Look at it. Always remember, take it according to its context. It says, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. When you look up the word sojourn, it means to live in a place uh, uh, temporary, a temporary dwelling place, a temporary uh, stay. It does not mean permanency at all. You see, that's why we are in this world too, in a temporary way. We may own houses and we may own lands, but the time will come when we'll have to just simply give it up. And uh, that's the fact. And uh, we are, our hearts are not to be set on any of these material things consisting of land and property and things like that. And so uh, in verse 17, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of person judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning. Where are they sojourning? You see, I looked up the scriptures on this, and I find that before the land was conquered, the land of Palestine or Judea, was conquered by the people of Israel years ago, they were sojourners in that land, in the land of uh, Canaan, until it was properly divided, and it became their land. They were sojourners in it. And then we find that once the land became theirs, then it was their property belonging to each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in any other land in the world where they chose to live, they were sojourners in those lands. Don't you see? And here they are, sojourners in lands that they have adopted 
because of the miserable rule and reign of the Roman Empire over the people of Israel for centuries. And so they adopted the land and they adopted the country and they were in those lands and countries for many, many years, even to the point of where many were born there, they knew nothing about the Hebrew language, and that's the reason why tongues were used in the second chapter of the book of Acts. It wasn't in order to give some demonstration of might and power, it was to meet a need, and that was that these Jews who did not know the Hebrew language might be able to understand it by these Galileans being given the gift of the various tongues represented by the lands of their adoption. So we have in that, uh, I, I want you to look at a verse in Leviticus chapter 25 and 23. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23, please. The Old Testament has a lot to say about this because in general we might say it all belonged to them. Leviticus chapter 25 and 23 it says the land shall not be sold forever. This was before the land was ever given to them. But God is giving instructions in view of the fact that it would someday be conquered by the people of Israel and they would be dwellers in the land of promise. The land shall, be not, uh, shall not be sold forever for the land is mine. For ye are strangers, uh, strangers and sojourners with me. Isn't that a lovely uh, phrase? Ye are strangers and sojourners with me. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a sojourner in this world. There was no room for him, even in the land of Judea. And isn't it nice to be in this world now as members of the body of Christ and know that even though the world's God is Satan, we are in it as strangers, that there is another stranger that walks with us by our side, and that's the one who says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We are strangers, but we're strangers with Him, and that's what makes it all worthwhile. And then when you get on to verse 18, you're inclined to ask the question here, why is it that these people are to be careful about their walk? Because according to verse 17, every man is accountable before God as to how he walks. Well, that's true with us, too. We've got 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We go to Paul and say, Paul, what do you say about that? Is that our condition, too? He says, read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Every individual sinner saved by grace, every member of the body of Christ, will be accountable for the way he walks. But he'll not lose his salvation because of the manner of his walk, but he will suffer loss of reward as a result of that judgment in the coming day. We cannot be judged for our sins penally. We cannot receive a penalty for any break in our conduct or any sin that we've ever committed. It's all been anticipated by God 2,000 years ago and placed upon His Son. And His Son answered for those sins at that time for us. But in verse 18, the reason why they are to be careful is because they were saved. And he's only talking not about the twelve tribes, those are the people to whom James talks. And then James has a special word for the remnant. Now we find that Peter is talking about the remnant among these twelve tribes that are scattered. And what does he say to them? Here's the reason why they are to be watchful of their walk, and this is a good reason why we are to be watchful. It says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, 
filled with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now we know that these are two lovely verses. Many times we quote them as though they really initially belong to us, but initially they don't. Have you ever noticed that uh, we find that only Jews could be written to after this fashion? Why? Because Gentiles would know nothing about redemption without money, without price. They would know nothing about a lamb that was slain. You know that in the Bible we find that there is no lamb mentioned between Acts chapter 8 and verse 32 and 1 Peter 1.19, this verse, Paul never talks about a lamb because that's Israel's language. But it doesn't mean that Paul is slighting the blood of Christ and there's ample proof to, prove, uh, to show that too. So here we find that uh, Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, the apostle of the body church, never uses a reference to Christ as a lamb. I think that should be prominently brought out in a scripture like this. This shows the Petrine authorship of this particular epistle. It's not Pauline. It's not a church epistle. He is writing something that these Jews are well acquainted with. And that was that in Exodus chapter 12, God demanded every family to take to themselves a lamb. That lamb was to be killed and the blood was to be caught in a basin. Then they were to go to take a bunch of hyssop and that's some greenery growing wild out of the walls and rocks and so on. And they were to dip it in the blood and sprinkle it upon the side posts and the lintel of the house. And all of those within the house on the night of the Passover when God came over to pass over the people of Israel, everyone were saved and not a person would lose his life. But in all the households where there was not the blood sprinkled upon the doorpost and they were sleeping very soundly when the angel of the, the destroying angel came through the land of Egypt, we find that the firstborn was taken. If it was a son or a daughter, it mattered not. If the father was the firstborn in his family, he was removed. If the mother was firstborn in her family, she was removed. And whatever was firstborn of their children, they were taken. There was death in every house. And that's the price of redemption. They were redeemed. Israel was redeemed. They were bought with a price. But not with a gold or silver, but with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now why does he talk about gold and silver? Because back in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, we find that every... Uh, every male member of the family had to be redeemed. And there was a shekel of silver that was the price of the redemption of every male, uh, I forget just exactly how old it started, 20 years old and upward or something like that. But every male that was a proper age and the age was stated by God, they had to be redeemed or they would die. And their, their redemption was looking forward to the cross, but then it could only be by silver. And that God recognized that to be the redemption price for each family, for each son of that particular age. But we know that that day of figures is a thing that's of the past. We have the precious blood of Christ. And it's an insult to God to come with our money or to come with our fame, or to come with anything that we have gotten ourselves, our own glories, our own crowns, that we might uh, try to describe our values with. And they're all going to disappear the moment a person dies. None of it will be left. And we find that that's not the way to be redeemed. 
in closing, I would like to say and, and make this statement. Paul is just as clear as Peter in regards to the blood of Christ. I just want to read in closing now a few verses that point out the blood in order to show the value that the Apostle Paul puts on it, but he never mentions the Lamb. The Lamb is language that belongs to Israel. Romans chapter 3.25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. You see, it's through faith in His blood. No one can come to God apart from Christ and His death on the cross. If I am to come to God and find acceptance before God, it must be as a poor sinner who's had his need met in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died a substitutionary death in my place, and he took my place, he suffered for me, the just for us, the unjust, that he might bring me to God. And therefore, through faith in what he has accomplished on the cross in the shedding of his precious blood, we are saved. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Isn't that a marvelous verse of scripture? We find that we have the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption, but always and only through the blood. It's impossible to, to come to God, to dare to find an access to God apart from Christ and his death on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth is not our approach to God. The Christ of Calvary, uh, the Christ of Galilee is not our approach to God. It's always the Christ of the cross. And when we come in view of what Christ has done and in the power of his death on the cross, we are immediately accepted and saved by the grace of God. Now I want to give you three verses in Colossians chapter 1 beginning at verse 20. I'm not going to read all three, but I've taken certain parts out and you can fill them in if you want to. But the important parts are these. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, and you hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. I find that there are a lot of people who don't like what the Bible says about us, naturally speaking. It says there is none that doeth good, there is none righteous, and there are other words that are far worse than that. Right back in the book of Job, chapter 19. And people will take offense at this kind of language. And really feel in their hearts that's not a good way for God to make friends and influence people. It runs against the grain, but unless something runs against the grain, God can't get our attention. He wants us to know that there is none that doeth good. There is none righteous. And if you don't like that part of the language of the Bible, why don't you settle for a better part then? Because you can't find fault with this. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now doesn't that offset anything you don't like about the other verses? I don't like what I read about what I am by nature, by practice. But on the other hand, I like what he says he'll do for me. He'll forgive me my sin. He'll give me a place among them that are sanctified in Christ. He'll make me an heir of God and a joint heir with him. And he'll make it so that I will be without blame in his presence. And I will be without reproof in his presence. And I am at the present time in his sight without spot and without blemish. That's the truth of justification. What is justification? Made as though we had never sinned. And that's what salvation is all about. 
So if you don't like what God says about what you are by nature, I'm quite sure that you have to love what he says he's willing to do for you in spite of what we are by nature. May the Lord bless his word to us this morning. 1 and verse 20. Some marvelous things are revealed in these uh, books of the circumcision and we find that Israel's future is a wonderful future as we look forward to it and see it prophesied so beautifully. And uh, we are thankful to God for all that he has ever taught us that will come to pass with those people. 1 Peter chapter 1 at verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfainted love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Now in verses 18 and 19 we have found a reason why God would expect the people of Israel to live properly apart from sin uh, in their sojourn, that is as strangers and pilgrims in the countries of their adoption because of the iron rule of the Roman government which was then holding sway over the nation of Israel or the land of Judea. And we find that God's reason for this great expectation of their living in separation from sin was because they had known something about redemption and they were not redeemed with such things as silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ. Now there are a lot of people still trying to be redeemed by the price of silver and gold or trying to pay very dearly. Uh, for this redemption because they believe that it's to be purchased they believe it's to be worked for and uh, there are a lot of other thoughts in the minds of the flesh somehow the flesh has not submitted itself to God's word that says there is none that doeth good no not one and as long as people don't want to submit to that we find that they think that they have enough within themselves to purchase the redemption and sometimes you can listen on television and find that people are being questioned about some certain things and then they make statements uh, that show you that they don't know that redemption is a free gift and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But we find in verse 19 it says, but with the precious blood of Christ. I'm glad we had that song tonight that there are some who are brought through the flood and others through other experiences, but all must be brought to God through the blood of Christ. And we have to make much of the blood. And this wonderful portion of Scripture goes on now. And verse 20 shows clearly, of course, that there's no period behind verse 19 as a continuation of the thought of the redemption that the people of Israel had, uh, not with the price of silver and gold, but with the precious blood. So in verse 20 it says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And of course that brings before us the fact that uh, God had planned this redemption for the people of Israel. Because Israel's redemption of course was the first need that was to be met. Israel's redemption is the redemption of the prophets. 
And uh, we find that God uh, caused the prophets to look down the vista of time and able to take in the future when the people of Israel will be able to disciple all nations and when nations are going to walk in the same purity that the people of Israel will walk in in the future. And it's all because of the same redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ will not have died for Israel and die again for the Gentile world. We have uh, uh, reaped the benefits of Christ's death on the cross, of the redemption that is through his precious blood. So it's nice to notice that this redemption was not an afterthought in the mind of God. Sin did not take God by surprise because when Adam and Eve were told how they might be able to stay innocent in God's sight, we find that God had already planned for any eventuality in case man did not continue to obey God and if, in, if, in case man would fall as he did, he already had a plan of redemption. And that's one reason why it says that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. I want you to look at the book of Revelation, please, because I think that this is reminding us, uh, this uh, statement, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, reminding us something that's said in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Now again, one of the proofs that the book of Revelation is, is and belongs to the nation of Israel is the fact, once again, you have the mention of the Lamb. Now you don't have it in Paul's epistles. I told you this morning from the 8th chapter of the book of Acts to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, there's no mention of a Lamb at all. But when you get back into the book of Revelation now, and Israel's future, it's all based on the blood of the Lamb. So we are not surprised to find three references to that blood. Now, in uh, chapter 13 and verse 8, it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, some people look at that statement as though it makes room for the error of an election. Uh, that is an election unto salvation. And they take this verse of scripture to prove that God already made up his mind who is going to be saved in a past eternity. And he put their names in the book and they just simply had to come to the place where they had to accept Christ as Savior. And uh, therefore there was no mistake ever made in the Lamb's book of life. And, uh, but I don't uh, agree with that at all because I believe that this is based on foreknowledge just as you have it in uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 28 and 29. We find that God foreknew those who would accept Christ and because of God's foreknowledge, because of the fact that he knows all things from the very beginning to the end, he is able to make a book that would... Uh, uh, put down the names of those who eventually would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It isn't that he is making those people because he has uh, chosen those particular ones as opposed to those whom he has not chosen. He is not using coercion or doing something in special favor for those particular people because he appointed them to salvation. That's not it at all. He simply knew that there was a time in my experience when I would accept Christ as Savior, and if my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, written from before the foundation of the world, it's simply because 
God knew that I would be saved. He would not use coercion, although the power of the Holy Spirit must be used in every born-again situation because we're always born again and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it says, Lord, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb of the uh, book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Some say that's not our book of life in which our names might be uh, written. And uh, I don't know whether it is or whether it isn't. I'm not in a position to say anything about that at the present moment, but your name is written in some book. And that book is a book of life, whether it's of the Lamb, and the Lamb refers usually to the nation of Israel, all the time to the nation of Israel, I should say. But don't worry about it. Your name is written in, the, in a book of life, regardless of whether it's the Lamb's book or otherwise. But do you notice it says here in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, in the mind of God, it was absolutely certain that the time would come when Christ would have to be born of a woman, born under the law. And he would live for 33 and a half years and go to the cross and become the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's why you have that statement made in the early part of the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. And we know that uh, God knew that his son would die on the cross. And of course, his foreknowledge, again, would be able to say that there would be a certain time uh, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his human life, for which he was incarnated, in, uh, made Christ incarnate, and uh, when he would die on the cross, suffer the just for us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So there shouldn't be any problem over that at all. And that's what's mentioned here uh, in First uh, Peter chapter 1. But then in uh, another scripture, in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, you have the Lamb mentioned, and I just want you to see it for connection. In uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, And I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, that's what the beasts are, there are four living creatures, intelligent beings, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And then look at verse 12, it says, Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is all in relation to Israel's redemption because he, in the book of Revelation, is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Now going back to verse 20, it says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now the last times are the same as the last days or the last dispensation, if you want to look at it that way. But you say, how can you call that the last dispensation? Well, according to God's program, it would have been the last dispensation if the people of Israel had simply accepted Christ as their Messiah, as the promised seed of the woman. And if uh, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and through Peter's preaching of an amnesty, a way of salvation for those who had put Christ to death on the cross, and if they had simply accepted that plan of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ would have returned according to Acts chapter 3, and then there would not be any other dispensation to consider. But the dispensation of grace came in 
Because God planned that such a dispensation would be revealed as a mystery, as a divine secret that he had in his mind from before the foundation of the world. A time that preceded his plans concerning the nation of Israel and the Lamb slain. And way back then God had planned that in the event that Israel would not accept Christ as the Messiah as he was offered to them throughout the entire book of Acts, that he would bring in or reveal this secret to a servant of his, and that servant was the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he would reveal that secret to him, and the one who would reveal it to him would be Christ in resurrection. So we only know Christ since the resurrection, as it were, because all the ministry preceding that was purposely for the people of Israel. If we had nothing else but the epistles of Paul, we would have all that's necessary to know our fortunes and, and our promotions and our uh, riches and so on. It would be all that we would need to know all about that. But here we find it says that uh, in verse 20, but was manifest in these last times for you. I would like to suggest that as far as these last times were concerned, that this represents, of course, Israel's kingdom dispensation, and that was to be the last, and it could have been the last, according to God's purpose for that people, that God reserved, as I said, for special revelation and introduction, or the injection, you might say, of a special dispensation of grace, so that God would not be foiled in his purpose, which is made known in the prophets, to save Gentiles. And of course, as long as Israel refused to be that, uh, uh, that source of blessing to a Gentile world, and they refused that particular blessing or responsibility, we find that God decided that he was going to save Gentiles regardless. And so the salvation of Gentiles today is not according to prophecy, it is according to, uh, to mystery. Now, it was in Israel's last days that God sent forth his son. In other words, the last days had begun probably by the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, uh, we read verse 1 as well for the sake of connection. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us, that is, the people of Israel, not the Gentile world or the body of Christ, but unto us by his Son. And when in these last days, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, undoubtedly, if you were to go by the scriptures, undoubtedly was the beginning of the last days. And then the Lord Jesus Christ in those last days of Israel's life on this earth, we might say, prior to the king setting up his glorious kingdom, of which kingdom there would be no end, we find that these last days would usher in some wonderful blessing for the people of Israel. Well, that's Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. But we find that this, these last days were eventually broken off some 35 years later, at 70 AD, when God... Uh, broke off his uh, relationship with the nation of Israel, only to be resumed again after the rapture of the church, after the completion of the body of Christ. And so it was in Israel's last days also that the Holy Spirit was set forth in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost to empower these witnesses 
according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. If you want to go back to that scripture and see the last days were already then in progress. Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. Now it's good to write these down to get it down and get in your mind what the last days mean. Too many of us have been listening to uh, preachers for so long a time who have not taken the scriptures and rightly divided it and they make no difference between the last days of the church which is given to you in 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy and possibly in other portions of the scripture. They make no difference between the last days of the church and the last days for the people of Israel but there is a great difference. Acts chapter 2 and 17 says... Here they are quoting uh, Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Well, all of the aspects of this particular sending forth of the Holy Spirit were not realized because they were quickly cut off by the fact that Israel was not repentant She would not accept these signs as coming from God. And for this reason, many of these, uh, this particular part of Joel's prophecy in chapter 2 never did come to pass. And the rest of it is all reserved for the later, for a later time when the last days will again begin to uh, progress. And uh, at the end of those, which will be the end of the times of tribulation, then we find that Joel's prophecy will really come to pass once again and all in its wonderful fullness. So I trust you can see what these last days are in relation to the nation of Israel. Now verse 21 of our text, verse 21, and uh, the first part says, uh, let me see, I better get back to my right chapter. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Now taking the first part of it first, the first half, God can only be believed in by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here you've got a good point to talk about salvation to a lot of people. You listen to a lot of people express themselves and they eventually show you that there's no knowledge of Christ in their conversation or in their thinking. There's something bad about that, isn't there? You look at that verse again and try to get the depth of the meaning. It says, who verily, or rather who by him, that is whoever by him, by the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in God, that raised him, Christ, up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Now, one's faith and hope must be in God, but it cannot be in God apart from Christ. So when a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he believes in God. Only we don't talk about God anymore, we talk about Christ. Now, I hope you believe that there's enough scripture for that. And we find that to believe in Christ is to believe in God. To know Christ is to know God. And to have faith in Christ is to have faith in God. How many people there are who say, I believe in God. You never hear them say Christ. And don't put it in their mouths and say, oh, you mean you believe in Christ. Well, if that's what it is, yes, that's what I believe. We put too many things in the mouths of people. We help them to believe a lie. And that's the wrong approach. 
And that ought to be something of a telltale evidence that they don't know what Christ is to believe in when they say, I believe in God. How many old people who have been living in the past and not able to say, I believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that I put my faith and confidence in. And then if you say, well, don't you believe in God? Of course I believe in God, but you can't believe in God without believing in Christ. He's the one that gives us admission into the presence of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So you see Christ, you see the Father. You believe in God, you believe in Christ. Rather, you believe in, in God. And so on. But God cannot be appreciated. He cannot be known. He cannot be the one to forgive your sins apart from your personal faith in Christ. And we don't have enough of Christ preached. There are too many denominations who make a lot about God and nothing about Christ. And that's really a shame. And some of those places are called fundamental. Now, one wonders at the lack of the knowledge of Christ or the lack of references in, of Christ in the speech of many in Christendom today. Now, as I said before, don't try to get the people to think that they have believed in Christ and that's what they mean by saying, I believe in God. Just take them at their word. If they say, I believe in God, well, then you come to the conclusion they don't know Christ. And you ought to give them the gospel rather than patting them on the back and say, Oh, I know what you mean. You're really a Christian. You've been born again. And then they go on, you know, and agree with you about all of that. Now, I want to say a few things about what we have in Christ in order to show you that you cannot have faith in God without having it in Christ. You cannot be a believer in God without being a believer in Christ. And if you believe in Christ, that's all that you're asked to do. Because that's the only way God is known or revealed to us. First of all, we are created anew in Christ Jesus. Now, it's only through Him that we are created anew. We belong to a creation of which He is the new federal head. Adam was the federal head of the old creation, which fell into sin. But now we have been born again or recreated in Christ Jesus. A second thing is this, it is Christ that dwells in our hearts by faith. It's not God the Father, it's Christ that dwells in our hearts by faith. The third thing, it is in the knowledge of Christ that we are to grow, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these people are not growing in the knowledge of Christ, they seldom mention Christ. And yet they're all around us, having been believers all of their lives, but never having a dealing with Christ. It is the Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Not God the Father, it's Christ that died. It is in the likeness of Christ that we will yet be conformed in the future. It's Christ not in the likeness of God, but in the likeness of Christ. Another one, it is Christ that intercedes for us. The Father doesn't intercede. He's the one that's being interceded for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, the intercessor. It is in Christ that our blessings are stored. Verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenlies. It's in Christ in which we find these things stored. It is with Christ that we are hid in God. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. And you can go on and on and on and on. Everything is Christ. Why don't people make more of Christ? Well, they haven't been taught to. 
Christ has not been made very much of in the in the preaching. We have a lot about God. And people are willing to say how much they believe in God and how much they love God. But it only reveals the fact that in all possibility they are strangers to the Lord Jesus Christ. But once you've settled it all with Christ, you have settled it with the Father. And the Father is not jealous as to how much you love His Son. That's what He wants you to do. He wants you to put all of your, all of your emotions and all of your love and all of your uh, fellowship into the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what makes the Father happy. Now the second part of verse 21 says, uh, And gave him glory, or raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Sure, whatever is in Christ is in God. Don't forget that. When you go anywhere and you preach, don't preach God. Preach Christ. Oh, we know that the wrath of God is going to fall upon men, but that's God in another aspect entirely. It's not the wrath of Christ. It's the wrath of God that's going to fall upon men. As far as Christ is concerned, he would like to shower people with, the unsearchable, uh, with his unsearchable riches. Now, it was God that raised up Christ and gave him glory. Now, I want to say this. One of the highest aspects of the glory that the Father has showered upon the Son is that no man can have faith in God apart from faith in his Son. That's only one aspect of all the glory that God has showered upon his son. And when the Bible says that God gave him glory, it was in response to his loving obedience to the cross. And when God saw that there was nothing else but loving obedience to the death of the cross and all of the suffering that was involved in it, God raised him up, gave him glory. And one of the glories is the fact that God has made him to be head over all the storehouses of God's salvation. That reminds me of Joseph. You remember Joseph in the land of Egypt back in the book of Genesis. We find that Joseph got to be quite a personality in Egypt. We find that God made him to be ruler over the storehouses of Egypt. Nobody could get anything that a dog could wag its tail without Joseph knowing about it. And if anybody that was hungry wanted to eat, he had to come to Joseph. And that was the king's order. Go to Joseph. Now suppose somebody came along. He was kind of a politician. He says, you know, my family is, uh, is very hungry and they're starved and so on. And uh, I know that you are the king and I've worked for you for a long time. And I would like you to open the storehouses and feed my family. Give me something from that storehouse. You know what he would say? Go to Joseph. No matter how much or how high your feeling might be about God. If you try to get into God's practice and present and try to get something from him without going to his son, he would feel insulted. He would say, go to my son. He is the one that's been set over the storehouses of God's eternal salvation and all the blessings that are involved because he is the one that's purchased it all by the blood of his son. Now the Jews were especially to see this for God was the familiar personality with them with whom they had dealings in the Old Testament. You see the name God everywhere back in the Old Testament. You don't see Christ. You don't see Jesus. You see God. Now we know that Jehovah was God manifest in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they didn't know that. They had dealings with God. And the name of God is given hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. But it was for them to see that God is also in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And God the Father can only be approached by coming to the Lord Jesus, and the Jews refused that. They refused him his claims of deity, and therefore they would rather say that he was the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary, rather than to say that he was verily the son of God, because he gave all the evidence and proof of his sonship with God, and that was the purpose of all of these miracles. Now you get into verse 22, it says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Maybe before we go too far in that verse, we might say that cleansing of the soul was the reward of obedience, the obedience that the gospel of the kingdom called for. Uh, you can see that obedience in verse uh, 2 of the first epistle of Peter and chapter 1. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. They had to obey the message that Peter came with. And all, all he said was, repent. You have taken the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of life and glory. You are responsible for his death on the cross. And the only way to get out from under the judgment that will come upon you and the whole nation is to repent and be baptized and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Did they accept it? No. Just a few, we might say. 5,000 one day, 3,000 another. But what's that among the hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in Judea and also in the land surrounding? But these who were saved were, had received the cleansing, of course, that was involved in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You remember? Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The obedience that they gave to the gospel, listening to it, obeying it, becoming repentant and being baptized with water and whatever God had set down as a means of accepting this forgiveness, they did that and the result was cleansing of soul. That's what they needed, of course, because God had said through the apostle Peter, you have by your wicked hands taken and crucified. And who is he that they had taken and crucified? The Lord of life and glory. Now this, real, this resulted in a realistic, uh, what we might call non-hypocritical love for the brethren. Uh, that's what you get in the rest of it. Look at verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, that's the, that's the reward of having obeyed the gospel of the circumcision through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now you can ask a reasonable question and say, well, if I am already loving God and I am commended for loving God, why does he tell me to love, uh, the, uh, love each other with a pure heart? Now there are two words here, Greek words from which we have the word translated love. There are two kinds of people among the Jews that these particular uh, saved people who have been born again according to verse 23 uh, there are two kinds of people for them to love they are to love their brethren their fellow Jews in their tribe or in all the rest of the 12 tribes they are to love them but the only love they can shower upon the unsaved element would be Philadelphia that's the Greek word for that first love so it says unto unfainted love that is unfainted means non-hypocritical unto a real love for the brethren that's one thing the new birth does and that is to help you to love people uh, after a friendly sort because it's impossible to uh, to love them 
if there is no response in their hearts and they don't know Christ as your Savior, we have a right and it's our responsibility to love them in the Philadelphia way. Brotherly love. We can have that love for our fellow members of the human family. Just as these people were enjoying that unhypocritical love for fellow members of the nation of the people of Israel. All right, but then it says, see that you love one another. And there we find one another would be among those who are saved by the grace of God, those who had been born again. Because there we do not find Philadelphia as the Greek word translated love, but agapao, which means a different kind of a love, a love as God loves. And you can't love a person as God loves who has not been regenerated until that person is regenerated by the grace of God and then you can love that person as God loves because this is the type of love that is expected in them. We find that there is a love that should be operable in our hearts for fellow members of the body of Christ in spite of the absence of any repayment for that love. I am to love fellow members of the body of Christ in a way that I cannot love my unsaved sister or mother or father or brother. And that's what takes us out of our immediate families that we are sticking so close to when we find that we've got another family that comes under consideration here. That's the family of God. Now I can love members in the family of God as God loved me and gave his son for me, but I cannot love members of the human family who are not saved in the same sense in which I can love members of the family of God. And why is it? First of all, we find that some brethren and some sisters in Christ are hard to love. There is no repayment for any love. They seem to uh, resent uh, too much affectation or anything, and we find that as far as they are concerned, they they, they, they are not super pleased about any shower of affection that you might uh, place upon them, but that's all right, you love them anyway. Why? Because instead of seeing them as you can see them, you look at them as God sees them as the finished product in the end. Someday they, the kind that's hard to get along with, the real believer in Christ, a member of the body, who will not repay you for your love and affection to them, you look beyond the fact that they don't repay you for that affection and say, well, I see you a sort of a grumpy person, a person that doesn't appreciate any affection that I might have for you, but I'm going to love you in spite of it. Because while I see you in this nasty way, because of your attitude toward things in general and toward the world and toward the scriptures, but because I believe that you are saved and on the way to heaven and eternal glory, I'm going to overlook what I see in you now and see what you will be as God sees you as the finished product. And what's the finished product? They too, along with us, will be conformed to the image of his Son. They are going to have glorified bodies, and I can afford to love them in spite of their unlovable traits and unlovable actions toward me. Now, you get that? We've got Philadelphia, we've got Agapal. We've got two kinds of love. One is a love that you can have for your brother, your sister, and your family who are not saved. You can have that kind of love that a man in a tavern has for another man in a tavern. Both men unsaved, and they can be uh, have affection for each other, a man or a woman or whatever the case might be. 
And uh, that's perfectly all right. That's what we expect in the world. We would like to see more lovable beings, even though they are not saved. We would have a lot less sin in the world if there is more consideration for each other and more expression of love one for the other. But on the other hand, isn't it wonderful to be able to love as God loves? We see the end production of God's plans for us and for our brethren, that even though they are hard to get along with, and very stubborn and obstinate and got so many quirky ways about them, just like I have. And as you see me, you don't want me around all of your lifetime. I can see that. But please overlook that fact. And just look at me as you may see me in the future at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with a glorified body. And no more inclination to sin. No more desire to sin. And sin is a past thing. You see? We can all find fault with each other. We have to admit that. But if we're going to love each other, it's not because of the way you seem to me and the way you act toward me, but it's because I see you as a finished product according to the Word of God so I can afford to love you regardless of non-payment of love. All right, then you get into verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed. Now, I'm afraid that we have used this born again thing so much of the time that we have lost the power of the words. I believe that uh, it's very difficult today to go in churches and expect to hear that phrase used and apply to the people of Israel, when after all it was to the people of Israel that the words were first used. And that is in uh, John chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13, and then you have John chapter 3 and verse 3 and 5, that's where the new birth is brought in. And that's in relation to Israel. As soon as the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, he made it possible for people to become born again. It didn't belong to the church as the first people to enjoy the new birth. And yet that in their minds, which have been made very small through today's Bible study, which is not really... <laughs> rightly dividing the word, we find that in the minds of many pro professing fundamentalists, they only see that people in the church, the body of Christ, or members of the church, or uh, those who are getting saved today are born again, and that's not the case at all. That was enjoyed in James, uh, among James people, and also among Peter's here. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Then we get God's picture of what we are and what our life is. Because it says, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. And that's what you can expect in this life. We've seen a lot of people who look good, and we've seen a lot of flowering uh, things in this world among the unconverted I was thinking of a verse in Job chapter 19. I wonder if you'd like to look at it. I just saw that yesterday for the first time. I got a lot of blessing in the book of Job just by reading various things that I have underscored. If you're used to underscoring your Bible, you ought to take a book and just pick out the ones that you've underscored. And my, what a blessing you can get out of it. Job chapter 19 and at verse 9, it says, He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. You know, there are a lot of people in the world today who are taking the materials offered by a world that's under the curse and whose God is Satan and they are taking the materials offered by them, provided by them, and trying to create glory for them and a crown ultimately to be worn. But in death, 
both are taken away. Because man's glory and man's crown is removed the very moment a man's last breath goes through his body. And at the very moment of death, his glory and his crown disappears. He's got nothing. That's the unsaved's future. We are not laboring to create a glory or a crown for ourselves. But these people do, you see. And the time will come when God will strip a man of both glory and crown. And I think the glory is the grass and the crown is the flower of the grass. And it says the grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. There's no end to the word of the Lord. It's for all eternity. But man, as far as he is concerned, you can't trust him. You can only trust the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, God who is made manifest in the flesh. So we're thankful to God for stirring up our thoughts along some of these things. These are very important issues. They're right here in 1 Peter and too bad we don't have a church that's educated today in these matters, and that's only through rightly dividing God's word. May the Lord bless it to us tonight for his name's sake.